Before we get to today's message, I want to tell you about another little child. Uh, picture on the screen, uh, Alex and Rachel, Pastor Alex and Rachel had their baby yesterday. For those of you who are new, this is our, um, our family life pastor who's going to be the next lead pastor here at New Life. They had their uh, little boy, Kai Isaiah DeRosa, at um, 2.47 p.m. And everybody's doing well. So I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, one more little thing I want to say to those of you who are guests today, whether you came because of the dedication or just here for the very first time, this message is something that we planned uh, back in the... Paul. And so I'm going to talk about something that people who don't go to church all the time think that the church talks about all the time. It's money. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because that's what Jesus is talking about in his Sermon on the Mount. We have this thing called Mountain Monologues. We've been doing it now uh, since Easter, and we're going to be doing it until the end of summer and the end of August. And the reason that actually Mountain Monologues was chosen, I chose it. I'm the, the lead pastor here at New Life and will be until January when Pastor Alex will take over as lead pastor and then I'll be finished on staff in uh, June of next year. So about a year from now, I'll, I'll no longer be a pastor on staff at New Life. And as I was praying about the year, this important year, um, I said to God, what is most important? What is most important for me, for the staff to preach about during these last you know, times? And the Sermon on the Mount came to mind because it is the most extensive um, section of Jesus' teaching in the entire New Testament. And we've been through chapter 5 now. It's chapter 5 of Matthew, chapter 6 of Matthew, chapter 7. So we went through chapter 5, and today we start into chapter 6. And in chapter 5, Jesus basically told us how we're supposed to be as his disciples and what we're supposed to do as his disciples. And the thing that Jesus did, and it's really something that a lot of people might be surprised because they think that the Old Testament is hard and the New Testament is easy. But really what Jesus did in the Old Testament, or what Jesus did in Matthew 5 is he said, you know, in the Old Testament, he didn't call it the Old Testament because at that time it was just the scriptures. The scripture says, you shall not murder. But I'm going to make it like a lot harder. You can't even be angry with your brother or sister. The first time when I was a little kid and I read that one, I went, I'm dead. You know, because like I have three brothers and I didn't like two of them. But anyway, um, so, so the bottom line was it was hard. And then Jesus said last week, Aaron was preaching last week and Aaron reminded us that Jesus, you know, the Old Testament says, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. You go, oh, okay, it's not hard. I mean, it's easy to hate your enemies. Love your neighbors isn't always that easy. But, but what Jesus said in the New Testament is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what Aaron said is that's not just hard, that's impossible. But if Jesus didn't think that was hard enough, he closes out chapter five by saying this. Therefore, after all of this I've already talked about, you all shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And Aaron helped us see that the only way that we're ever going to be able to fulfill any of these commands of Jesus is in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, her take-home point was, and for those of you who are new, that's the one point from the message that she wanted us to take home and, and live out this week, is the Holy Spirit empowers us to love our enemies. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do so many things that we wouldn't do. In fact, a lot of things we wouldn't even want to do. 
unless the Holy Spirit was in our lives. So now we turn to Matthew 6, and Jesus focused on his followers' core practices. Some people call them spiritual disciplines, but we're going to call them core practices here. And these core practices demonstrate that we have submitted our lives to Jesus and been born again. And if you're looking up on the screen, that's a very important statement. They core practices, and the core practices are giving, praying, and fasting. Those are the three core practice that Jesus identifies in chapter 6, they demonstrate that we have submitted. And that's a key word in the New Testament. In fact, the word submit means to voluntarily put oneself under another's authority. And that's what the New Testament word, hupotasso, that occurs 40 times in the New Testament, that's what it means, that we voluntarily put ourselves under the authority of somebody else. Now, the Jews who were listening to Jesus, they were under somebody's authority, the Romans, but it wasn't hupotasso. <laughs> they weren't voluntarily submitting to the authority of the Romans. The Romans were a political group that had them under their thumb. And in fact, there were even Jews, a group of Jews, a sect of Jews known as zealots, and they felt it was their duty from God to overthrow the Romans because they were only going to serve one person, God. Nothing wrong with only wanting to serve God. I mean, that's really actually a pretty good thing. And yet Jesus did submit voluntarily to the Romans' authority, even to the point of being crucified by them. But that's a message in a series for another day. So, right now, here's the point. This is a very crucial point. Some people think that being born again is a moment after which one is saved and Jesus expects nothing more. So, people ask you, are you saved? And what they mean is, was there a time when you said that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, and after that, it's all done and you just wait for the bus for heaven? And it could be two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years, 50 years. But there's really nothing after that. But that's just the beginning point. In fact, the second sentence in the, in the statement says, Jesus saw being born again as a moment after which our entire life is transformed. From that day forward, the Holy Spirit comes in and we start to change from the inside out in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are born again or saved in a moment, just like that. Boom, it happens. And then for the rest of our lives, God starts changing us from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. So in roughly the first half of Matthew 6, Jesus identifies these core practices of giving, praying, and fasting and tells us about how to do it and how to not do it. And then in the second half, Jesus tells us that God must always come first in our lives. And he offered several examples to demonstrate that point. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But for today... We're going to focus on my favorite core practice of Jesus. This is the truth. From the time I was 12 years old, this has been my favorite core practice of Jesus. And when I was 12 years old, I had no idea I would be a preacher someday. It's giving. Giving. Why is that my favorite core practice? Because I have never seen people change, including me, more from realizing that we are called by God to recognize it's all his stuff and we get to steward it. That's what changes us more than any other idea in all of these core practices, really. You know, stewardship and generosity, that involves time. It involves our talents, our treasure, and our touch. But it seems like the hardest thing for most people is this area of treasure. Maybe that's why Jesus addresses it first. It's giving and then prayer and then fasting. So in Jesus' day, right up to our day, money and giving, doing acts of charity, that's been a really tough thing. In fact, Jesus said it's the chief rival God in our lives. Martin Luther, the famous reformer of the 1400s and 1500s, he said this, people go through three conversions, the conversion of their head, their heart, and their pocketbook. 
Unfortunately, not all at the same time. And what he was saying was, you know, it's easy to say Jesus is Lord and Savior. A head thing, it's pretty easy. And it's not that hard to actually say, I want to give my heart to God. I want, I want to feel the God's presence. But to say I'm going to turn over <laughs> my stuff, that's a little bit harder, maybe a lot harder. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Alex and Barry and I went to a stewardship conference over at Victory Family Church. And at that workshop, shop, the presenters had a chart, which I've turned into a continuum that I'm going to call the stewardship continuum. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. But before I show you that, I want to share today's take-home point. Again, I shared Aaron's take-home point from last week. Here's today's take-home point. Acts of charity are an ordinary part of what we do as Jesus' followers. Acts of charity are an ordinary part of what we do as Jesus' followers. Um, so it's one of the core practices. The title of today's message, and if you have your little mountain monologues, thing, you already know this, is when we do dot, dot, dot. And I have do capitalized. Why? Because a lot of people say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be loving. I want to be kind. I want to be faithful, those kind of things. But then I asked, well, do we want to do like Jesus? Like, do we want to get up early in the morning and pray while everybody's still in bed? Do, do we want to actually go out every single day and put God really first, submit ourselves to his authority? Because Jesus did that like nobody ever did it. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 19, here's what Jesus said. I tell you the truth, the son, that's Jesus, can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. So here is the son of the living God. He's equal with God the father. And he says, I don't do anything except what I see in my father's example. His father's perfect. Jesus was perfect. You know, whenever Jesus told us to be perfect, maybe we can, you know, there's a clue for us. If we want to be perfect, just look what the father is and does and then imitate it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's read Matthew 6, 1 to 4. We're going to see how it ties in to stewardship and the stewardship continuum, which I mentioned a minute ago. So before we do that, pray with me one more time. God, I thank you so much for the group here today. I thank you again for all these children, not just the ones we dedicated, but all the other children here at church today, over in the galaxy or here with us who, who don't even perhaps know yet what it means to love you, but we get to show them your love. And I thank you today as we turn to your word and we, we, we're, we're going to read what it means to be faithful in these core practices in this particular one of giving. I simply pray this, that your Holy Spirit will open us up to hearing the truth in our minds, that we'll receive it with our hearts, and that you'll change our lives so that we'll live it out in our everyday life. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus said, and beware not to do your righteousness before others to be seen by them, because you will have no reward before or with your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do acts of charity, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may have glory from others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you are doing charity, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You might have read that passage before. You might have heard messages about it before. But Jesus made it clear that our giving, our acts of charity are done for God, not so other people will see them. In fact, he actually called out a group of people. We often hear the word Pharisees, religious leaders, and we go, oh, you know, like they're the terrible people. But in Jesus' day, they were the best people. The Pharisees were the most 
spiritual, religious people in the entire nation of Israel. And Jesus said, don't be like them. They're hypocrites because they blow, they literally did blow trumpets or horns so that people would see them when they were giving. They would blow the horn, people would look, and then they would give alms to a poor person or they would put offering in an offering box at the synagogue because they wanted people to see. And Jesus said, if you do that, you give so other people will notice, well, that's your reward, other people noticed. But if you want a reward from God, do it in secret. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Again, he's just exaggerating because how can you do anything without your left hand knowing what your right hand is doing, right? It's, it's, it, what he's saying is, do you want God's reward or do you want the world's reward? It's not a trick question. <laughs> if Jesus is in charge of our lives, we want God's reward. So here's the challenge. No one starts out in life as Jesus' follower. No one starts out in life as Jesus' follower. That cute little baby we saw on the screen, Kai Isaiah DeRosa, I know what the third or fourth word he is gonna learn is. The first word might be mama, might be dada, but the third or fourth word is either gonna be mine or no. <laughs> because we come out of the womb selfish. We come out of the womb. In fact, up until you're three, four, some people 44, you know, you think what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. Everything is mine. That's what we think. So, so we're selfish by nature. There's a reason for that. The Bible tells us why people are selfish by nature. The reason is because Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, had a perfect world and they weren't selfish. In fact, they had a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with the world. It was awesome. But then one day, serpent walks up to Eve and says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And, and it was a trick question because she knew the answer. She gave the wrong answer, but she knew the answer. And, and, and the devil says, you're not going to die. In fact, what the devil did to Eve was the same thing the devil does to all of us. He said, you know, it's really better to be in charge, to be an owner than to be a steward. And they bought the lie, and people have been buying the lie ever since. So, before I share the stewardship continuum, let me define the word stewardship. Stewardship is the acts of a steward, the act of managing that which belongs to somebody else. So the challenge is before we practice stewardship, we have to be stewards. And a steward is a person who manages that which belongs to somebody else. So stewards understand submission because a steward understands that everything they manage belongs to somebody else. But we come out of the womb saying, mine. We don't think anything belongs to someone else. And that's why we need the stewardship continuum. Here it is up on the screen. So the very first thing we are when we come out of the womb is a self-absorbed owner. Everything is 100% mine. I have full authority over my stuff. Now, as we grow up in some families, because of the family, because of the training, because of maybe they're part of a church, they start to understand, well, it's not really like that, you know, but, but what happens is the first thing we say is, well, I'm still the owner of everything, but I get it. I'm blessed, so I should probably share with some other people. And back when I was growing up, you know, people would come knocking on your door from the Red Cross and from other organizations, and, and you would go, you know, and give them five bucks or two bucks or whatever it was, because, you know, that's what the little dollar bills, kind of, yeah, the little dollar bills, it's all my stuff, but I'll share some. And you come to church and you go, whoa, I mean, it's not like the church I'm expecting, but that screen got to cost some money. How much do you think that projector was? 
whoa, you know, church must be doing pretty good, so they probably don't need my money. So I just give a couple bucks. That's what the obligated owner does. But then, if you're really religious, like a Pharisee, you become a obedient owner, and you say, it's still 100% mine, but I'm gonna do what God says. He says I should give 10%, so I'll give 10%, so he's cut, cut out that little 10%. We give it to God, and we say, wow, you know, I'm pretty amazing because I'm giving 10%. This is the stuff of religion. Religious people figure out the percentage, whether it's two or five or 10 or whatever, but they come up with a percentage, and they say, it's still all mine, but I'm gonna give some of it away. And what happens is, for some of us, and really it ought to be for everybody who trusts Jesus as Savior and Lord, we one day wake up and we go, oh, when I became a servant, a steward of Jesus Christ, when he became Lord, Lord means master, owner, God, I became a steward. And the ultimate goal is to become a love-inspired steward. And we recognize none of it belongs to us. I have given God total authority over his stuff. So the most important question that we can ask ourselves when it comes to doing any act of righteousness, whether it's giving or praying or fasting or whatever, is this question. How do I see who I am and what I'm doing based on the stewardship continuum? The Pharisees, the most religious people in Israel in Jesus' day, had made it past self-absorbed owners. They weren't self-absorbed owners. Can I put that back up one more time? Magic. Okay, so... Self-absorbed owners, they made it past there, they made it past obligated owners, and they made it all the way up to obedient owners, and they're giving 10%. And I'll be honest with you, most pastors in America, if all the people in the churches they served were obedient owners and gave 10% of what they made, the, church, the pastors would be excited. But you know, Pastor Alex and Pastor Barry, Pastor Kristen and me, we aren't most pastors. And we aren't excited until Somebody says, you know what? I really believe everything I am and everything I have belongs to God. Because when we get to that point, we've finally gotten to the point where Jesus wants us to be. And that's the only time I'm ever happy. I mean, I can be satisfied with those steps, right? In my own life and in your life. But until we get to the point of being a love-inspired steward, Jesus isn't happy, so we can't really be happy. And the reality is, Wherever we are until we're love-inspired stewards, we still see ourselves as owners. And if anyone or anything but God owns us and our stuff, we are slaves. I know that doesn't sound right. How can you be a slave if you're an owner? Because Jesus is gonna tell us in a couple of weeks, actually three weeks from now, he's gonna say, you can't serve two masters. You're either gonna serve one, you know, or love one, hate the other, be devoted one, despise the other. And then he says, you can't serve God and money. It's that simple. So the Pharisees thought that they were pretty impressive because they gave 10% of their stuff away because it was their stuff. But here's the thing. How impressive it is to give 10% of somebody else's stuff away. Like if I, if I said to Dawn, hey, Dawn, after church today, I'm giving you a thousand bucks. Would you give me a hundred back? Sure. Why wouldn't he give me a hundred back, right? Because he still has 900 bucks of my money. Even if I said to him, hey, Don, I'm giving you 1,000 if you'll give me 500 back. He's still happy with that, right? And actually, he ought to be happy all the way up to about $990 because he didn't have anything and I gave it to him. But, but so often, we act like whenever we give something away that we're doing something. We're really not doing anything because it belongs to somebody else. So an interesting thing about being a love-inspired steward, this is, a real, this is worth listening 
for and being here for. You know, we don't have to argue any longer about how much of our time, how much of our talent, how much of our treasure, how much of our touch we're going to give to God. The question becomes, how much of what already has been given to us are we going to use in his work? How much of our time? How much of our talent? It's not ours. How much of his time? How much of his talent? How much of his treasure? How much of his touch are we going to use? And how much are we going to keep for the needs that we have? You see, People ask me all the time, in the New Testament, we don't have to tithe, right? That's an owner question. An owner question is, do we have to tithe? Because I don't want to give away 10% of my stuff. But a steward question is this. Man, isn't God good? How am I going to serve him? Isn't God faithful? How am I going to use my time, talent, treasure, and touch to let other people know about it? So, be in the New Testament, it seems, if you read the New Testament from, you know, Matthew to Revelation, it seems that the standard of giving in the New Testament is 10 to 100%. And that's also a sermon for another day, but it's pretty simple to show. So I've said this dozens, probably hundreds of times over my 39 plus, it's only 38 plus years, it'll be 39 in a couple weeks, 39 years of being a pastor. When I talk with you about giving or stewardship, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. I don't want something. First of all, when you give offerings, if you give here at New Life, you're not giving to New Life. You're giving to God. It's between you and God. When I give, I'm not giving to New Life. I mean, I write the check out to New Life, but I'm giving to God. Nancy and I give our tithe to God or our offering to God or our special gift to God. It's always to God, even though it might be New Life or some other church's name on the memo of our check. It's really between us and God. And the reality is the second half of Matthew 6 talks about storing treasure in heaven. It talks about not being anxious. You know how you cannot be anxious in a world that everybody's anxious? Realize you don't own anything. You know, when I buy a brand new car, which I haven't done for a really long time, and somebody bumps it, oh, I was in a head-on collision a few weeks ago, and the only thing I was concerned about was, when am I getting my car back? Because they're going to fix it, and it's going to be better than it was. You know? So, but if I had a brand new car, I'd be, oh man, if I have a brand new house, I mean, my house is 15 years old now, and I, there's some things that need to be fixed up, but I don't look at something anymore and go, oh, I got that little touch of paint off right there. You know, when you're owner, when it's all your stuff, it's hard. So anyway, if you're a self-absorbed owner, you have a lot of company. 45% on average of a people who come to church in America, who come regularly, never give anything to God through their church. The evangelical Christians, you know, the ones who have been born again, who, who say that they're saved, that's 2.5% of their income they give to God. Most of us have good reasons for not giving. I mean, we're broke. Dave Ramsey said, people aren't greedy, they're broke. Well, there are greedy people, but... He's right, a lot of people are broke. In fact, statistically, 62% of Americans will retire with less than $10,000 in savings. 62%. Average consumer debt in America is rising again. You know, during COVID, consumer debt went down. Of course, they gave us money from the government, which we're gonna pay back, or our grandchildren will pay back, somebody will pay back. But anyway, and we couldn't buy anything except on Amazon. So, Consumer debt went down, but now it's back up to $38,000 per household. And that's an average. Consumer debt is credit card debt, student loans, mortgages, payroll advances, stuff like that. So if you're sitting there and go, well, I don't have any debt. Well, the person next to you has $76,000 worth. 
do the math and averages, take everybody and divide it into all the people, right? So 38,000. So next week we're going to talk about prayer. The next week we're going to talk about fasting. And then for two weeks what we're going to talk about is how do we get over thinking that we're the owner and how are we going to let God be the owner he is and live into that. You know, we have this illusion that we're owners. When I had my hip replaced six, six weeks ago, I wasn't allowed to drive. Do you know how hard that was for me? Sitting in the car, letting Nancy drive or Miko drive. You know, I have these people who tell me God is their co-pilot. He's in the wrong seat. <laughs> you know, he ought to be driving. And here's the thing. Well, I'm, I'm riding in the car, you know, and I say to Nancy, hey, when did they build that house? And she goes, eh, 12 years ago. Because <laughs> I don't have time to see all the stuff that's out there. I don't have time to enjoy life because I'm driving. I'm in charge. I'm the owner. But the reality is when we let huh, God be in charge, let him drive, it's so much simpler, so much easier. All we have to do is say, where are we going? And he tells us where we're going. We go, Okay, what are we going to do? Okay, we're going to do that. No problem. Money's a great servant. It's a terrible master. And I'm not saying that as one who always lives on that love inspired steward end of the continuum. Trust me, what I've done so many times over the years, you know, I've had to practice, I've had to train, I've had to be educated, trial and error, stupidity. All of those things have happened over the years, but I'm learning it's better to Better to let God be the owner he is and to submit to his lordship than to live in the illusion that I'm the owner. 22 years ago, when I left the Presbyterian Church USA and walked out of the Presbytery office in Zelianople, I had a thing running in through my mind, and here it was. If Jesus didn't take care of Nancy, Abby, and me, we were in trouble. We didn't have an income. We had a mortgage. We might have had a car payment back in those days. I'm not sure. But the point is, Nancy and I did this, as we've sought to do all of our married life. We submitted ourselves to God. We said, we're going to do what you want us to do. And here we are, 22 years later, and we have never missed a meal. You can sort of tell that with me. We have never, ever, you know, missed a house payment or any of that kind of stuff. God has been good because he is good. God is going to be good whether we understand him as our owner and we're the steward or not. So... If you're not there, let's say you, you heard what I said today and you go, man, I think I'm a self-absorbed owner. How am I ever gonna become a love-inspired steward? I wanna give you a little illustration and here's the illustration. I wanted to run a marathon when I was 49 years old. I don't know why, but I did. And so I decided to go out for a run. So I got my shoes and my sweats and everything and I went outside and I went for a run. I ran an eighth of a mile. That's halfway around the track down here at Knock, okay? In case you don't know, a marathon is 28 miles, 385 yards. So I, 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 I wanted to run 28 miles, 365 yards, but I could only run an eighth of a mile. So I got this training program, and six days a week for 20 weeks, I did what it said. And I ran a quarter of a mile and a mile and two miles and five miles. When I ran seven miles, I said, man, I never ran this far in my life. Then I ran eight miles. And I said, I never ran this far in my life. And in my training program, the farthest you ran was 19 miles before you actually ran the marathon. I guess that they figured if you can run 19, you can run 26. But anyway, do you see the point? Start with something. 
If you're giving nothing and you give five bucks, that's something. And, and then give 10 bucks, whatever. You know, it, it really will be, a, it will be a step in the realm to become an obligated owner. And then you become the obedient owner. And then you become the steward, which is the most freeing point of all when you get to that point. You know, the thing I want to make sure you do, don't do, when you start giving, don't blow a trumpet. Don't tell everybody, man, I used to not give anything. Now you should see how much I give. It's not about that. Jesus said that's all the reward you get. Just give it between you and God and let him deal with that. Now, now, this is really, really important. Submission is not natural. It's not. Remember the little baby, Kai, Isaiah, DeRosa? He's not going to submit to anybody for a while. He's not going to submit to anybody. You know, this is really cool, the, the, the baby going out, and sometimes babies cry. People say, do you get upset when babies cry? No, because babies mean there's going to be future people here at New Life because they're present people now. I love it when I hear babies cry. I love it whenever there are actual little kids in the church because I know that they're going to grow up, and I know this. You can't keep a baby from crying. If a baby needs a diaper change or is hungry, mine, take care of me. Babies are going to do what babies are going to do. And we're going to do what we're going to do as babies spiritually too until we grow up. The thing is, give 20 years to that baby that's crying and they will be an adult in body. The only real question is, will they be adult spiritually? So the process that I'm talking about is going to proceed at the speed of our submission. The process will proceed at the speed of our submission. You could submit 100% of it today and boy, that speeds up the process. But until we do that, it's not going to happen. When we submit to Jesus, one core practice, one small action at a time, over time, it's like that training program for the marathon. Eventually, one day we wake up and we say, wow, I, I am actually a love-inspired steward today. And it didn't take as long as I thought it was going to take. So here's today's next step, and here it is. I will approach this week with an attitude of do acts of charity. I will approach this week with an attitude of do acts of charity. Really, it's an attitude of, Jesus, I'm going to submit to you. You know what attitude is? It's the tone of our heart, really. I wake up in the morning and I say, this isn't my day, it's your day. I wake up in the morning and I say, where are we going today? Oh, yeah, you're the driver. Even if I'm in a driver's seat in my car, I'm still not driving if I'm a steward. Okay, so when we submit to Jesus first, everything's possible because when we become stewards instead of owners, the supernatural happens. Jesus promises it. We'll talk more about that in a couple more weeks. We probably already talked long enough for today. Jesus promised us that when we become stewards, we will be blessed beyond measure and every one of his promises are true. Amen? All right. So, once again... We read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we see this is impossible. We can't do this when we're in charge. The only way this is possible is if somebody else is in charge, Jesus. Every week we talk here, for those of you who are new, at this time in the message, every week we talk about how important it is to have Jesus be Lord, and we say that means owner, master, God. What does that mean? It means I'm not owner, master, God anymore. So I'm going to transfer ownership to him. And Savior, which is the easy part, which means he rescues us from sin and death. So if you've never done that before, 
Here at New Life, we say, you know, living the life in Jesus is not easy. It's simple. It's not easy. But trusting Jesus, transferring ownership, that is simple. It's as simple as A, B, C. A, we admit that we've been saying mine for a long time. (laughs) And now we need to say yours. Pretty simple. B, we believe that it is his because he is Lord. He is Savior. He is God. Jesus gets to be the one that tells us what to do. And then C, we confess that to people, not in that blow your trumpet kind of way that the Pharisees do, but just in a way that in our everyday life, people say, huh, something different in that guy, kinder, generous, different. And then if they want to know, we say, "Hmm, Jesus. And we know that that will only happen when we are empowered and filled up with the Holy Spirit. So if you would like to do that right now, you've never done that before, pray for Jesus, be owner. I'm going to say a prayer. You can say these words. The words aren't what's important. It's the transfer of ownership that's important. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for creating all that exists and letting us be stewards of it. Thank you, God, that despite my being selfish, and I admit that, that I am selfish, you still love me. I believe right now that My life will be better if I transfer the ownership from me to you. And so I do that right now. Jesus, I I trust you as Lord and Savior. And, And God, I confess to you first that your son Jesus is now my Savior and Lord. And I ask you to fill me up with your Holy Spirit so that I can live faithfully the ways of Jesus all my life. And God, I pray for all of us who have prayed a prayer like that sometime in our lives that we will be filled anew and afresh with the Holy Spirit so that today will be a supernatural day for us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.